Hello and welcome. My name is Hazel Thompson, and I'm your host of Beyond the Story podcast. This podcast is to highlight the incredible stories of people around the world that I've had the privilege to journey alongside as a photojournalist and filmmaker, often in hostile environments and war-torn countries. Together, we'll be focusing on key justice and humanitarian issues affecting the world today, hearing directly from the individuals behind the headlines and their journey beyond the story. I hope as listeners that you will be inspired by the transformational strength of my guests. Come and join me on this journey and hear the first-hand experiences of ordinary people surviving the extraordinary and the transformational power of hope in not only surviving, but thriving beyond the story. I'm delighted to introduce you to Ileriana Garshi, who trained as a medical doctor and then had to flee her homeland when war and genocide devastated Kosovo in 1998. This episode of Beyond the Story was recorded before Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. As we see millions of women and children fleeing the bloodshed, Ileriana's story echoes down the years. Her life turned upside down by war, fleeing her home in order to save the lives of her two children. Fast forward over 20 years, and Ileriana shares how she has used her personal experience as a refugee to empower women with skills and confidence to rebuild their lives after losing virtually everything in war. So settle in for a long listen, but please be aware, in this episode, there are references to war and sexual violence. Today, I have a very special guest called Ileriana Garshi, and she is the Executive Director of Kosovo Women for Women. So Ileriana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure and honor to be with you. It's a joy to have you. Now, we're Zooming to have this conversation. Where are you Zooming in from? Your office is based in Pristina, isn't that right, in Kosovo? Yes, we are based in Pristina. We have a beautiful center, which is a gift from Women for Women International for Kosovo Women for Women, uh, which is called Women's Opportunity Center, uh, where... The emphasis is on women because it is their center, although the organization owns it, but it is because of women that we work with. Which is wonderful. What, what are you doing for, for the organization? I am the director of the organization. We are a team of 18 people who work with socially excluded women in Kosovo. We were part of Women for Women International until 2017, and we are an affiliate. But we have continued to work uh, in the same way as before. So we work with the most socially excluded women, if I may say so. The war happened 21 years ago. So women who had no luck to be educated, so they have no access to education either. They are the poorest of the poor and with no access to finance. So we offer them a program of social and economic empowerment, which is the social part is life skills training 
discussing of every topic that it, it is about women's life, it is about decision-making, health, ways to gain money, even if there is no education. In fact, we boost their self-esteem a bit because they all do a lot of work at home. And thinking that there is no income is not really true, but we make them aware about that. And the last part of our social empowerment curricula is the networking. So we are happy to be building a network between women of Kosovo, but we are also happy to be part of a network around the world of women that Women for Women International works with. Now, just to explain to the listeners, Women for Women um, International is an organization that I'm a huge supporter of and have supported a number of their projects. Kosovo actually being the first project I visited that's our first connection point, wasn't it? Now, I first met you in 2016, and it was actually my first time to the Balkans. I came with a lovely lady called Alice Rivers Cripps. It was an exploration trip because she wanted to support Women for Women International as a businesswoman and a jewellery maker. I travelled with her to go and see the work that Women for Women are doing and really to learn about the real impact and the aftermath of war, what happens, the long-term impact, and also just to see the wonderful work you're doing to help the women. And it was really an inspirational trip. What do you remember with our, with our visit? You were a wonderful host, I have to say. Oh, thank you. Well, I cannot believe that it has been almost five years. I know, it's gone quickly. It's going to be five years. So it was so wonderful to understand that a businesswoman from UK wants to visit. And actually, she has very rare skills, the, the jewelry that she makes. So even during her trip, she also accepted to teach some of our women to show them how she does it and the way she does it. I knew that Alice was coming, so a businesswoman. But then there was another woman that was holding a camera. I was inspired, very much inspired by you, Hazel. I had the opportunity to learn about your work and to learn how is the anti-trafficking done in different parts of the world where you work. We were hosts, but I was very inspired and I learned learned a lot. And this is really why I have to say I've invited you to come on the podcast for us to have this conversation because it was such a special trip. We had some very powerful conversations. You made an impact on me as well with the things that you shared from your own story. What's happening still in the Balkans? Give a bit of context for the listeners. The, the war in Kosovo started in 1999 and I still remember it making a huge impact and being on the news. But there may be some listeners that are not so aware that there was a very recent war in Europe. Why did the war start? Just to give a bit of an overview so people are completely filled in with the context of the work that you're doing. You know what I usually say when people tell me that the war happened in 1999? In fact, it started much earlier. It started maybe in 1981. I was 15 years old. I was in high school when the student protest started because they were asking for better conditions. Just to give you a brief idea about Yugoslavia, because Kosovo, it was an autonomous province back then. It was part of Yugoslavia, which was blooming then. My childhood was beautiful. 
and it was the best country to live in. But what I didn't know when I was growing up was that, in fact, Kosovo was the poorest part of Yugoslavia. Even now, when I meet people, they say, oh, I visited during 70s Yugoslavia, and it's usually Croatian coast. It was the most developed part. Kosovo was poor. So in 1981, the students asked for better conditions. Unfortunately, it was politicized. So it was politicized the way that the Yugoslav government treated it as political and then arrested students and then chased after all the politicians who wouldn't agree with Belgrade until 1989 when the autonomy was abolished. So we lost the autonomy and we became part of Serbia, which was unacceptable, of course. So this was in 1990, and it continued then. The request was to become a republic, as in Yugoslavia there were republics. So it was much longer, and in 1990, unfortunately, the closure of institutions happened, together with the schools and hospitals, So in the hospitals, there were no Albanian doctors anymore. If they didn't sign a paper that they agree with Serbia, that we are part of Serbia. So it, everything was very politicized. So 1999 was the end of all this period that has been very difficult. And this is why after the war in 1999, we had a lot of women during 90s couldn't attend education. So the number of men became much smaller because they had to flee because they wanted to send the young men who were supposed to be sent to the wars in Croatia and Bosnia fight against Croatians and Bosniaks. So young men flew and young women had no education. So 1999 is, is the time when, in fact, the internationals bombed Serbia to stop the genocide because the Serbs started killing people. There are books now that are published about the intentions and about the plans to ethnically clear Kosovo and have it without any Albanians in it. So this is why the, the bombing happened And everything thinks that the war was for three months. In fact, that was the time when we got liberated. It's really good to have that insight from your side because we didn't know what was happening until it became in the headlines in 1999. Now, you took us, I believe, when I came to visit, is it we went to Precaz? Is it Precaz? Yes, it's Precaz. I'm pronouncing it wrong no. there. No, 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 no. It's, you are right because it is written with an... Is that where it all began? Because I remember having a real impact. You took us to a house that a whole family had been massacred. Is that the starting point? The starting point was when we started the peaceful resistance. Okay. What we did is during the 90s, we organized the parallel education and parallel health system. When the institutions got closed, fortunately, we had the support of internationals that wanted to understand what is going on. Unfortunately, Bosnia was a lesson because they learned that internationals have to be more involved 
if they want to save lives. So they were taking care of what is going on. We organized parallel government and people who lived in diaspora, we are lucky to have a huge diaspora, who wanted to help. So everyone was paying 3% of the salary in Germany, in UK, in United States. The Albanians that lived there paid for the Kosovars. So we organized the parallel system. We organized schoolhouses, that's how we called them. We organized the hospitals in the houses. So you literally had your own system within the country? Yes. The acting president of Kosovo for yeah. the moment, she was a student in a high school, in a house school. Wow. So she belongs to those generations. Now, your personal story, I was really inspired and quite moved when you shared what you survived. This is only 21 years ago. And what I find very inspiring is, despite the trauma you've lived through, you're now helping others. What was your personal experience of war? What happened? You had to flee, didn't you? You, You were in danger because of the genocide. So could you share... That time period, please. I was a student of medicine. I am a medical doctor by profession, although I do not uh, practice medicine. In fact, when people say victims of war, I usually say I am a victim of war too. When I started working for Women for Women International, they were saying, you know, we work with the victims of war. And I was saying, you work with the victims of war, you that are in the United States. But we are all victims of war. So I I am one too. So when my school was closed, my university, I was a graduating student. I had only some exams to become a medical doctor. But the university was, was closed. And we waited for two years, hoping that they will be reopened until we started the parallel system. So in the meantime, I got married and had two children. And then through my husband, who was involved in politics, I was involved too, maybe in direct way, not directly, but still, we had always people who were organizing the parallel system, international who would visit. So I was part of all of that. And when the genocide started, when the police started going into houses and chasing people and killing them, we had separate from my husband because many of his friends were killed together with their children. So mother were left to live and fathers were killed with their sons. And we had two sons. So it was very dangerous that if they find us together, I will be the only one surviving. So the police started asking people to leave and we had to separate and we had to leave. So I I took my children and went to Macedonia and became a refugee. You took your children and went to Macedonia, but how do you flee? You took quite a dangerous path out to Macedonia. Could you explain that part of the story? I was with my brother-in-law because I didn't know to drive back then. So we left On the way out of Pristina, we were stopped by police. So all the windows of our car were broken. 
and it was this good cop, bad cop story, you know. So there was one police that was saying, go, when they stopped us and they broke everything. Then one was shouting, go, and the other one was shouting, stay. So it was very dangerous. You didn't know which one you should do because, of course, you don't, to one of them, you are not listening. So my brother-in-law decided to, to continue. We took the risk that maybe the bullets will be behind us. It has happened so many times. But there were so many cars. So maybe they were stopping everyone and doing the same thing, like threatening them. Yes, we have paid money. They asked us for all the money that we had. So we gave them every money that we had. They asked me if I had any jewelry. I didn't have anything with me. I was fleeing, escaping to, to save the lives of my children, actually, not mine. There was so many Serbian forces and there was always this risk that they will stop us. We got to the border and... There so this is the border of Macedonia. So Skopje is the yeah. capital. We were asked to go to Skopje. They told us, go to Skopje. So we went, but we were lucky to have a friend, the director of Mercy Corps back then. He was in Macedonia. He was covering Macedonia and Kosovo. So he was a good friend. And he came and picked us up at the border, finished some procedures that had to be done. Then there was another problem because Macedonians wouldn't allow us to get into Macedonia with a broken car. So we couldn't leave the car at the border. We were not allowed. We could not leave. We could not enter Macedonia with a broken car. So again, what to do? And again, we had to, to get someone that knows us, take the car for us. So we continued walking and left the car in a yard very close to the, to the border. Fortunately, you know, because we could have been there for weeks. That was the day that the camp blot started. It was the camp in the, I'm sorry, in the no man's land uh, where the train brought thousands and thousands of people. Uh, my mother and brother and sister were brought the, the next day. Uh, then my husband was brought but fortunately, at the end, everyone was allowed in Macedonia. So after spending a couple of days in the field with no food, they were allowed in. So we got together in Macedonia. How old were your two boys? One was eight and the other one was five. And how far did you have to walk with two small children? Uh, it was not very long. That was not a problem because Terry... Our friend, the director of Mercy Corps, then took us yeah. by car. So in a way, we were lucky, you know, compared to what people went through. Our story was, you know, we, we, we crossed the border easily, if I may say so. I mean, uh, but seeing many refugees and there are refugees from Syria now in Kosovo, too. I remember being a refugee and I think people who were lucky not to go through that experience being a refugee think that the refugees have left their belongings, houses, property. In fact, 
how I felt was that I lost my identity. I, you are not you anymore. You know, you are, you, how, first, how can you prove who you are? You have no papers. You don't have your diploma with you. So how can you start working anywhere, even if you want to? So, okay, I could work something. I'm not saying, but not your profession. You don't know how to tell your children that we cannot go back home and we have no home and we don't know what is going to happen. I mean, of course, as parents, you tell your children, it's going to be okay. My children even told me when we crossed the border, they said, we didn't really know that we were leaving because with my husband, we just had, but tried not to cry, not to make drama, you try to protect your children. Uh, But then you don't know what to tell them. After being a parent that kept the promises and tried to give a good education, raise good men, your sons, suddenly you don't know what will happen with them. So it is a very, very, very difficult situation. Although... We had a house. Terry took us to his house. You know, how to say, we were not on the streets like it happens with other refugees. And still, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to be dependent on someone that has to house you and feed you and take care of you. Now, I... Uh, that's something that I really remember from our time together. You being very upset, you you were crying, sharing, because at the time in 2016 was the refugee crisis of many uh, refugees fleeing to Greece. And it was so politicized. You went to two countries. I just remember you saying to me, "Yes, Hazel, I was welcomed with open arms, with, with an embrace. Me and my family were welcomed. Yes, It was hard enough being a refugee, but we were welcomed. But now I'm on television. I'm sitting watching refugees die in the sea. Exactly. And no one is there to, to welcome them after them surviving this crazy life and death journey. That had a huge impact when you shared that. Would you like to share with the listeners of what do people need to know about the reality, not just losing homes and possessions, but from your experience of being a refugee, for the refugees today from Syria, from Yemen, from all these places, what must that be like to survive that and then be spat on and not welcomed and told to go back home? Please share your thoughts and insights into that. Well, I I still cry every time I see something like that. And I remember once putting on my Facebook, thank you people that, that hosted us when we needed, when we were refugees. What if we didn't have a house? So I'm sure that only if people really feel threatened, they will leave their country and they will just turn the back to all that they have because it's their family, it's their life, it's their uh, properties. It's many emotions that are there. It's like being in the middle of the sea and don't see any... any no, no hope on the horizon. Yes. So, and, and if you are humiliated on the top of that, 
I can just imagine how people feel, you know. I, I'm sure sometimes they say to themselves, I would go back to war and be killed. It's better than this way. That's how I felt. And I believe many of these people, unfortunately, there are people who abuse. They play a role and they have other interests. That's something else. Most of people very reluctant on, on leaving their house and being dependent. I, I have seen on TV people, high professionals, who are now dependent on somebody that will give them a piece of bread. I mean, it's doctors, it's nurses, it's teachers. Architects, engineers, it's many, many stories, you know. It's And like you said, what you just said earlier, you're just trying to save the life of your children. Yes. Yes, and then it happens that they die on the way, you know. So you try to save them, and you kill them on the way. And at the end, as you are saying, somebody spats you and, you know, humiliates you and thinks that they want to use the other people's country. While actually sometimes the hosting countries, there are so many refugees, Kosovo refugees, who are now very famous, and the hosting countries are proud that they have them. So I believe that by being good hosts, in fact, you raise them, you empower them to become good citizens of the host country. When we came, I'm actually wearing it, even though this is just audio, I'm wearing this necklace that came out of inspiration. Coming to Kosovo, it's one of the most hospitable, warm countries I've been to. We were so welcomed into the community and the other women. And the inspiration in the end, the necklace that was created from this trip was called Share a Hug because we felt so embraced. It was also down to your story and all the other women we met about being embraced, what you're talking about, hosting and embracing even by strangers. We were embraced by strangers. And I I know a, a friend took you into Macedonia But that's the thing, we should be seeing refugees as friends, not strangers that need to be embraced and held because they've come out of a very traumatic situation. And it should be a safe place for people to heal and wait for the land to heal so people can return because people want to return home. Um, Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure they cannot wait for that. Yeah. So could you share a little bit, after you're in Macedonia, where were you hosted next? We were in Macedonia, and before we left Kosovo, in fact, there was on news on CNN, because my husband, as I said, he was involved in politics, and he was an advisor to the president of Kosovo back then. So it was on CNN that he was killed, which was not true, but we still don't know. You still can find that, that news. This is when we were scared, and we knew that if they find us together, you know, the worst will happen. So in Macedonia then, he was asked to leave Macedonia. So we decided, okay, we have to leave again. Although Macedonia was so close and we were hoping that Kosovo will be liberated and as soon as we can, we will go back home. Fortunately, I had family members, my aunt and my cousin, we were living for many years in Turkey. So they asked me to go there. I went to to Turkey. Uh, Now when I'm talking and we talked about refugees, 
it was heartbreaking because I was saying, I, I was hoping to get back to my country and I'm going even further now. It's not that far, but still it was like feeling that maybe I won't come back anymore because Skopje felt like, yes, I'm so close. I, I can go back in two hours. So I went to Turkey and I was in Turkey when Kosovo was liberated. It will always remain one of the best days in my life. We were so happy to come back home. So happy to come back home. Although, you know, Kosovo was, of course, in, in a very bad shape. I was lucky to have a scholarship, to have a stipend. So we went then to Switzerland and spent almost two years there. But we were here and there. I mean, it, we were not refugees anymore. We were back to our normal life. And there is no better moment than coming back to your home. Oh. I hope, I really hope for the refugees now. I know their countries are all destroyed, but it is a special feeling to go back and rebuild your country. Now, let's talk about that because you're now very much involved in the rebuilding could you explain, the war was 21 years ago. I hear people say, I've been somewhere, and they're like, oh, the war, that's, that was long ago. But could you explain, what are the long-term impacts of war on a country? And why is it so important for there to be investment and to invest into the society, invest in the women to rebuild a country? When I was there, I still saw the impact of the war. Yes. In fact, in Kosovo... In rebuilding, you don't really see a lot of problems anymore because it is a small country and there were huge investments into building the buildings. So building a lot, yes, you, you don't see it. But in fact, when you just scratch a bit, you understand the long-term impact. I remember... An American gentleman, a very experienced one, that told us, I think it was 97, and he told us, if you can avoid the war, avoid the war. I think that was the biggest lesson in my life. I think that's the best advice that we have ever heard. And this would be my message to the world. I mean, there are no winners in a war. Nobody wins, except for a small group that profits from it. Hmm. So, there's a problem to rebuild your country, but it is a problem to rebuild the society. Because it has been torn inside. We work with women who were victims in many ways. What I didn't mention in the beginning was that during the war in Kosovo, there were approximately 20,000 women that were sexually abused. And for a very long time, for 14 years, nobody spoke about that. It was a taboo. In fact, apparently, immediately after the war, there were some women's organizations that started working with women. And women were kind of opened to tell the story because it, it was immediately after the war and they needed to take it out. 
it was mostly men that closed the subject. Wow. Because they didn't want to talk about that. I know that when I was in Switzerland, there were a lot of couples who were divorcing because during the war, in fact, the wife was raped. And the husband didn't want anymore to be her husband. So here, apparently, as in, in many parts of the world, it is the shame is on yeah. the victim. So the shame would be on the family too. So they just closed the subject. And it became a taboo. For many years, nobody wanted to talk. Fortunately, uh, our ex-president, Atipete Yahyaga, uh, who was a woman president, she reopened the Pandora box. And fortunately, in the law of the martyrs and victims of war, there were the victims of sexual abuse included. And the commission started working. It's very, very difficult job because identifying the sexual abuse after 20 years is very difficult. So for the commission now, and apparently I don't think that there are procedures anywhere, you know, how to prove it. So the commission is working and we have a group of women, five women, who came to us after they had finished our program and wanted to share the story with us. This was in 2012. And we have, if I may say, worked with them because they didn't want to share the story. They shared it only with their life skills trainer and myself, me being as a doctor. And with a friend of mine who is a psychiatrist, we went together and they shared the story. We were talking to them. They would call us when they would need us. We would have a coffee. There was a woman that from United States that published a book about women. So closely they started to kind of move forward. And last year they have received the pension. Oh, wow that the government of Kosovo is paying to the victims of sexual abuse. So it's five women that received the pension for our organization. So it's a, it's a compensation fund for the, for the trauma they've received? It's not a reparation. No. Because the reparation has to be paid by Serbia, who did it. But it is a compensation by the government. I told this just to tell you that, you know, our work is not only trainings, capacity building, skills, uh, networking. Uh, there is a lot of, of ways we do help because there is many ways that the help is needed. And especially if women have been silenced for so many years, that has a very detrimental effect on the mental health of a whole section of society. Yes, it does. It does. And now it's, you know, it's sometimes a bit painful because there is kind of interrogation of those women. Did that really happen or not? Sometimes it's, you know, they have to go through the story. So there are women that don't want even to ask for that pension because they have to, to go through many layers of interviews and 
kind of checking if it really happened. So oh gosh, that's uh, the number is not. I think it's it's been now maybe five hundred victims. I don't really know. Wow, out of twenty thousand. So uh, it's not a huge number, but still, it is something. We have moved along. We have stories to share. We have women that went publicly and shared their story and told. And there is a lot of work against the stigma on those victims. So important. So hopefully as, as more survivors speak out, we encourage others to at least speak out into a safe place that they can release the trauma. When they first came, they told the trainer, we want to tell you something because we have something because they have all been raped. They are members of the same family. Mm. So they said, since the war, every time we meet, we discuss only about this. So we want to share it with somebody else, but we don't trust anyone. You are the only person, our social empowerment trainer, that we trust. So we want to tell you the story just to, to take it out from ourselves. Glad you were there. <laughs> Thank you. I, we, we think that there are many other women. Yeah. There is another one, actually, that when she finished the program, she also, during the whole program, the trainer said that, in fact, she was telling stories, saying, one cousin of mine, it happened to her, something, a rape happened to her, to a friend of mine. At the end, she came to the trainer, and she said that it was her and that she has tried to commit suicide three times, but she was saved. Her husband knows she married after the war. Her husband knows. So there is another organization that works, and they have a special psychologist that works with these women. So we referred her to the organization, and we hope that she will get better, and Mm. when she gets better, that she will ask for the pension, and that's kind of compensation. Yeah. Just to give a context of the challenges just on a a social scale and an economic scale that Kosovo is facing, especially women. I I know when I was there, I was was quite taken back at the, the high level of unemployment and the lack of opportunities for women. Could you just give context to why programs are so important? Unemployment is very high. So almost 80% of women are inactive which means that they are not even trying to find a job. There is a lot of reasons about that. We did a survey once and we had focus groups of of women whom we asked, why are, are you looking for a job? They said no. And we asked why. So the replies were either we don't have the skills to find a job, either we have no money because the corruption So they think that they will have to pay someone to get a job. Either they said that they don't know anyone because you have to know somebody to get a job. Again, corruption. Or they said we don't want to offer other services, which is the perception, unfortunately. This was back in 2013, so we have moved away. But unfortunately, not many opportunities as you said, because the industry is not very developed. So this is why we are trying to look at the market and our vocational trainings are based on the market needs. This is why we have 
programs for employment and self-employment. So in the villages, we are looking more at self-employment, which is trainings in horticulture, in beekeeping, and dairy products. In the city, we do handcrafts. We do tailoring because the industry of tailoring, the apparel is increasing. So this is the last opportunity for women that is increasing really very well. And we do service industry, which is child care, elder care, maintenance and retail. So these are the trainings that we offer. And then we try to facilitate how to find job for them. So we have the job placement office. We have a database of 1,200 women who, are, who have finished our trainings and who are looking for jobs. So since 2012, we have facilitated jobs for more than 950 women. Wow. Yes. And that's 950 families. I mean, that's not one woman, that's whole families. So that's a very nice pool, if I may say so. And we have helped them also with their writing a CV, preparing, getting ready for an interview. For some groups, we had soft skills trainings on how to look for a job, how to find a job, but how to retain a job too. The code of where, wearing, how you behave, how that, that was another training that we have offered. When I came, I don't know if this has improved in the last five years, there was 55% of women were unemployed. And there was only like 6% of businesses were owned by women. It is improving. Uh, I think the, the unemployment is now like 36%. Oh, that's a huge improvement. Yes. So now 13% of the businesses are owned by women. What I love about the work you're doing, you're working with Serbian communities and Albanian. So it, you're across the board, you're holistic, you're helping rape survivors, you're meeting emotional and psychological needs, as well as giving economic and, 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 and social training. You're working on self-esteem, how to get a job. You're very holistic in your approach. Yes, we are actually, and the number of women is huge that we work. We, we work at least with 1,000 women a year. How many women have gone through your programs now? Because that's quite an impressive number. It's more than 35,000 since 1999. What's the co- population of Kosovo? It's 1.8 million. So 35,000 is a large number out of, uh, out of that. It is. It is a large number. We had five women that have applied for political place at the assembly. So in their municipality, they ran. One was very close. None of them won. But we are very proud that they have tried. So they had enough self-esteem to, to do it, to continue. Maybe it is an advantage that we have been for a very long time in a very large network. So we know what the needs are. And our projects are always based on the needs of women. Could you share, so, could share a woman's story who you've seen a huge transformation from the moment they came? Is there a story that has really inspired you? Well, there are many, actually. We have in different parts of Kosovo. So I will tell you more if I can. Yeah. <laughs> there is one woman had more business skills. We understand that women know that they have rights on inheritance. 
but they don't know how to ask for advocacy on property rights issues. We worked with teaching women what is what does the law say and what are the mechanisms to ask. So, and there were some incentives for women that will start the procedure. So she started the procedure and we gave her first incentive. So she established a very small place where she, with the members of the associations, started preparing pickled vegetables. And now she has won a USAID grant and she is going to open a huge place where she will employ people. She invited us. She said, I would love you to come when I do the opening. I hope that this spring we will be there. She's producing jarred pickles. Yes, yes. And actually, I had someone who have asked for pickles, wrote to me, and she said, I am very sorry. I would love to do it, but I have the contracts with the shops. So I have promised that I will do it through them and I cannot sell it to the others. So I said, all of this makes me even happier because you have the market because usually that's the problem, finding the market. So I said, okay, (laughs) just don't worry, just go on. And we have another woman that we are very proud of because she she went on newspapers She didn't know reading and writing when she started the program, I think, four years ago. The advantage is that she has the support of her husband. He was very helpful and she attended the training on beekeeping. And we were delivering grants and she got 10 beehives from us. And then she increased that number because she got another grant from her municipality. And in the meantime, she learned reading and writing. So she went publicly on TV and we are very proud that she became a businesswoman because she sells the honey. We all, everyone in the office this year bought the honey from her. It's excellent quality. And I can share the link if you wish. Yes, you, you, you have to give us the link. That's one memory I have from being with you. When we drove back, we were close to the border on the, one of the last days. I remember it's the longest drive. I think it's when we went to visit the Serbian village. On our way back, we stopped and met a lady with beehives and yes. we bought some honey and it, the honey was so sweet. I don't know what type of honey, which flowers, but I have to say Kosovan honey is delicious. <laughs> Just to explain, you support them through the programme. What we give is what we call incentives or micro-business capital. We have an amount of money that belongs to them. And then based on their vocational training, they will get a tool, a sewing machine. Is it a beehive? Sometimes the sewing machine, they need a professional iron. Uh, Sometimes it happens if the tool that they want to buy is more expensive than the money that we have, we co-invest. So it's kind of they also learn how to do a procurement procedure because if they co-invest, they go through the procurement and they learn financial procedures too. So important investment into small businesses. It's not a huge amount of money, but it makes their business successful. It's brilliant. 
So from your journey, from being a survivor of war to now what you're doing, rebuilding, I will call you a rebuilder, a restorer of Kosovo. You're helping restore the women's lives. Um, For those listening, hopefully people are listening from all over the world to this podcast. It's been a very weird year. Everyone is learning to live with COVID. What are the current challenges that you're facing as an organization? The biggest challenge for the last year, of course, it was the pandemic, especially because our women, they couldn't move. So last spring, they couldn't sell what they have produced. So if they are producing fruits and vegetables and they cannot, or herbs, and they cannot sell it immediately, they are spoiled. So there were a lot of losses as they are very small producers. It has affected them heavily. For us too, as an organization, because we work directly with women, we work at the grassroots level. So it is very important to meet with them. But what we did, we have tried to change the way that we work. So we started working online. So in fact, we switched into different lessons, lessons about pandemic, but still, of course, it is not the same, like meeting and organizing trainings. It was a huge challenge. So we did reorganize everything, but it was not the same and it took a lot of of energy. But I think we did a good job. Still, you know, there will be time to understand the real impact of the pandemic. So we, are, we think that there will be later. The second thing is that with the PTSD, because we were all part, we almost all went through a war. So this was kind of flashbacks. You have to be locked and you cannot move out and... You cannot contact with the others, and, you know, trauma over built on the on the previous trauma. But again, we have organized some meetings with a psychologist, our Women for Women International HQ was very understanding. So with the graduates, we have organized groups to have meetings with the psychologist for stress relief sessions, which was great. I've never really thought of that, Eliriana, that of course, for anyone who has PTSD, this is, the pandemic's going to be a major trigger. Yes. For some, like for a cousin of mine, I was discussing with her and during the war, she was, she was put on the spot with her sister. They wanted to kill her, kill them and then, okay, pardon them, etc. In fact, I was amazed because this is the resilience, in fact. And this is how people go on and, you know, the saying that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm. She reminded me of that. And she said, you know, I don't really mind about COVID, she said, because during the war, I was fearing that there will be no eating, you know, there will be no food soon. And every time I would go out, a bullet would kill me. Now, There are measures that I can protect myself and I have no threat of having no food. So I can go on like this. So it's interesting. People go through different different ways. I think if you've survived a war, your resilience is going to be better than us softies up here in the UK. (laughs) 
who, in all seriousness, I'm not belittling the impact of the pandemic. It's all relative in every country, but it's good to highlight the level of resilience. Thank you. (laughs) And then the challenge, the biggest challenge as an organization, I think it's time, you know, because what we try is change the mentality. What we try is change the habits of people. What we try is change the way the society functions. And it needs time. So sometimes there is no time because the world is moving fast and we have to to move together with it. So sometimes I, I would love to move things quick, quicker and they don't move as quick as we would love to see. It's because you're a restorer who's positive and you want to rebuild the walls. <laughs> so you want to see those walls whole. So look, we're coming to the end of our chat. Your amazing experience, depth of resilience. What would you share, those that may be struggling anywhere in the world with something, what have you learned from your experience that you could share with others to encourage people who are facing challenging times? What are your nuggets of wisdom? Well, I don't know if, if I have any wisdom. So, <laughs> But I think I have learned that we cannot live alone. Unfortunately, we are becoming very individualistic as a world. And it's, sometimes it doesn't really fit with the whole globalization. While you can be part of the whole world society, you become an individual. But our work is about sisterhood. It's about women like yourself who could easily be locked in their small world. A safe, comfortable world where there's no war. Exactly. Thank you for saying it. It was the word that I was looking for. Around the world, there are women who are looking for helping women that they have never met that are in need. And that's the most beautiful part, I think, because we need to live with each other. And that's the beauty of being part of the society, you know, helping someone, somebody helps you. Life is not, you know, is never the same. So there will be moments that you need someone and then there will be moments that somebody needs you. And I think that's the, most beautiful part that you can combine. And as a person that maybe I I don't practice medicine, but still I think it's inside me. So being, being if I may say, able to help the ones that are in need is sometimes deep in me. That's why I did medicine. So I am convinced that for the ones that help, and this is for the supporters of the organization. It's also very much fulfilling. It's kind of give and take because somebody gives it back to you. And what gave you hope in your hardest moments? Where did you find hope? When you were on that border and you couldn't see the horizon, you described like being out at sea. Where did you find your hope and your strength? Uh... Back then, it was my children. But now, it's women that we work with 
I believe stories that I told are an inspiration, are are a, something that moves moves you, keeps you moving and trying. I, I was very much involved in those efforts of having an, a free country, independent country. So now building it is part of my dream. I believe that I had a dream when when we were doing all that work. Maybe back then I couldn't see the end. Where is it? But I'm happy. But now I'm also very much moved. And I would love to thank very much the international community, especially the, the Western countries that has helped educate young people. We have a very young population. So many of them received stipends, went to best schools around the world and are back. And that gives me hope that we will be able, and we are building a good society, but to build even a better society than we did during these 20 years. There is young, very professional that are excelling. Sometimes in Kosovo, sometimes out, but they are still helping. So uh, that's, that's what really gives me hope. That's wonderful. And just before I say goodbye, what can our listeners do? I will obviously put any links down with the podcast. How can people support the amazing work you're doing? Where can they find you? Well, they can find us. We have a website. First, I would love to thank you, Hazel. This is the help that we need. Spread the word of the work that we do. Spread the feeling of helping someone because that's what you were doing when you were talking about the necklace and Alice and yourself and visiting. And it's all, I believe that it will inspire someone. We can be contacted through Women for Women International. We are part of their website too. We have a very visited Facebook page, Kosovo Women for Women. And I believe there you can see all our activities. It's the most used tool by the organization that we work to communicate with anyone that is interested about our work. I'm proud to be part of the Women for Women International community. It's, it's a real joy. It is a sisterhood. If anyone who's listening has a passion for women, especially women who have been affected by war and who have a passion for Kosovo, for the Balkans, get behind this work because... I was inspired when I went and Iliriana, it's not only just you, you do have an incredible team and I just love your heart, Iliriana. It's true, we need to pass on. It's all about giving. We need to keep giving to each other. We all have something to give in our hands. So thank you. Thank you. So much. It's been such a joy to spend time with you. Thank you for this opportunity and for also talking about my team. And I would love to also maybe use this opportunity that if people want to just visit, they are welcome. They, you know, it's just if they want to see, if they want to feel how the Balkans is, we will be very happy to host them. Women in our programs, they love when internationals visit. So I've never been hugged and kissed so much. I mean, this is pre-COVID times. It was a joy. I mean, the necklace sums it up that we made, share a hug. I, I felt embraced into the heart of the Balkans, into the heart of Kosovo. So, Iliana, I can't wait to come back and visit you again, Pristina. And 
to see you continue to grow from strength to strength. And it's just a real honor to have you today. Thank you for sharing your personal story. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And we can't wait to have you back. I can't wait to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. I hope you've been inspired today by Iliriana's wonderful positive energy. Her incredible story and heart to restore her country after war by helping rebuild women's lives. Please do follow her work online, and I can assure you her invitation for visitors to Kosovo is a genuine one. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and please do join me again for the next episode of Beyond the Story. You've been listening to me, Hazel Thompson, on Beyond the Story. Please consider supporting the work of my guest today by clicking on the relevant links below. And if you've liked what you've heard, do help fund the production of further episodes by giving to Beyond the Stories GoFundMe page. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can click follow on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're using. And please do share the link with your friends. Thank you for joining me on this journey and hearing the first-hand experiences of ordinary people surviving the extraordinary and the transformational power of hope in not only surviving, but thriving beyond the story. Special thanks to my incredible team, executive producer, Nancy Fraser, assistant producer, Ella Kachani. The audio is produced by Drew Hawley at Lab Studios and the music is by George Holiday. Mm-hmm.